welcome back to another Ag Watchers. We've probably got the busiest vet in the world on the podcast this week. We've got Mark Ship, the uh, Chief Veterinary Officer for Australia. Uh, kind of a big talking point at the moment is obviously foot and mouth disease or FMD and lumpy skin disease as well. We probably shouldn't forget about that. So Mark, thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on and uh, taking the time out to have a chat with us today. No, thank you. It's great to have uh, the chance to talk about these important topics. So we'll probably, I don't know if you've listened to the podcast before, but we generally start off with a bit of a, a warm-up to get us get us going, a bit of a psychological test. Uh, so we will uh, we'll fire a word at you, and there's uh, six words over the course of the experiment stroke exercise, and then you just give us back the first thing that comes to mind or the... Uh, the first thing you think of short short, short short phrase or one word yep yeah so matt you go first foot and mouth disease disaster black pudding <laughs> i think he's gonna say disaster again <laughs> yuck mm. haggis never had it oh, missing out Biosecurity in Australia. Uh, very important. Uh, lumpy skin disease. Uh, um, yeah, it, it's the, the, the big challenge that very few people know about. Yeah. Mm. African swine fever. Uh, deadly. It's gone off the radar. That's it. I think you've survived it, apart survived. from the... Apart yeah. from the haggis one and the black yeah, one, we'll mark you down for those ones. So. But the other ones, the answers are very interesting. And, and African swine is one that's kind of off the radar, you know, the media at least, but certainly not off the radar of, um, of, of Asian, Asian nations that are still grappling with it. Yeah. So I look, for, look forward to having uh, breakfast uh, with you guys at some stage. <laughs> so, so, Mark, tell us, tell us what is a cheap veterinary officer anyway? What is your role? Uh, so as the Chief Veterinary Officer, I'm the, the lead uh, nationally and internationally for veterinary issues in Australia. Uh, so I brief the, the Minister on animal health and biosecurity issues, but uh, also represent Australia internationally to the World Organisation for Animal Health. Obviously, our, our animal health status is very important uh, for our ability to trade uh, in animals and animal products. And then I, I, I work on an, a range of other projects, uh, such as uh, One Health and antimicrobial resistance with the Chief Medical Officer, uh, putting in place uh, the, the National Antimicrobial Resistance uh, Response Plan and uh, reaching out into the Pacific at the moment, uh, uh, given the uh, national interest in, in reaching out to the Pacific and, and building capacity there. Uh, that there's a great need there in terms of biosecurity and, and veterinary expertise. It's been a, um, I think, I guess people that aren't familiar with, with what your role is, but they would have been very familiar with going through COVID and seeing the chief health officers of the states and federally. So it's a kind of similar role, I guess, in the sense, but it's relating to animal health and welfare and those kind of issues rather than the human side. Is that right? Yeah, very much so. Uh, so I, I wasn't as visible uh, publicly, but was briefing the Prime Minister on issues such as uh, lumpy skin disease, uh, African swine fever, the, the threat of foot and mouth disease, 
and then when we had uh, the Japanese encephalitis uh, outbreak uh, uh, some months ago, then uh, briefing the, the the cabinet and and the the national cabinet on on that uh, issue uh, in relation to the, the impacts on uh, wildlife and and uh, farmed animals, but also on the human population. And presently, Mark, I mean, it's just starting to get some traction. Obviously, that those in agriculture have been aware of it for a little while, but it seems to be starting to get some traction in the, you know, kind of the, the city media, I guess, at least foot and mouth disease in the last few days. I've noticed some starting to pick it up. Um, wh why is it a big concern at the moment? What's going on that's making us so worried about it presently? For, for say, foot and mouth, and we'll get to lucky skin later as well. But do you want to give us a background as to why people are worried about it? Uh, so foot and mouth disease is the most uh, concerning disease for the livestock industries uh, in that uh, if it is present in a country, then that country uh, is largely excluded from world markets for uh, uh, live animals and animals and animal products of uh, cattle, sheep, goats, pigs. Um, and for Australia, where we export 70% of all of our uh, livestock production that would have a very significant impact if we weren't able to export that 70%. Uh, the concern uh, presently is that that disease, uh, which has been absent uh, from Indonesia uh, for 30 plus years, is now present in Indonesia. And that uh, having uh, such a contagious disease so close to Australia, and particularly a, a destination that's very popular with tourists uh, is of concern. Uh, because not all of those tourists and, and returning Australian travellers will be aware of the, the, the consequences for Australian agriculture if uh, if we don't keep up our guard. And that's that's the issue there as well, is that it's it's the fact that it's so close and it's to a destination now where we have a lot of travel backwards and forwards between Australia and, say, Bali. But, 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 but there is also a lot of travel between, say, Nepal, India, parts of Africa, which have all had foot and mouth disease, China, over the past five years. That's right. Uh, so we, uh, we, we manage this risk on a daily basis. Uh, Australians love to travel. They, they go to Thailand, Vietnam, China, India. All, all of these countries have foot and mouth disease. Um, and so the, the risk is, is one that we're used to dealing with at, at the border. And, and that's the reason that we have the incoming passenger declaration uh, from everybody that returns to Australia asking whether they've been on farms, whether they're carrying any meat or other animal products. And uh, we need to, to ramp that up and, and increase that awareness, particularly now that we've got the additional threat uh, so close to home. How, how, how big do you think the risk is like, compared to what it was a year ago? Uh, so we, we assessed the risk. Uh, we engaged a, a group of experts to undertake a, a estimate exercise, and they came up with a, a figure of uh, 9% of chance of uh, foot and mouth disease coming into Australia in the next five years. And then when it got to uh, Indonesia, that, that uh, uh, estimate was uh, upgraded somewhat uh, because of the, the closer proximity, but it didn't increase significantly because of those issues that I've spoken about, that we handle this risk every day. Mm. And because foot and mouth disease is not a, a disease that's going to blow from Australia, uh, uh, from Indonesia into Australia, it's not going to be carried by insects or birds. Uh, it needs to be carried by people uh, or, or animals and animal products. And, and we feel that we've got those, those channels well managed. Mark, is, is the biggest risk then either people bringing in products 
that's that's contaminated or or where like say on their boots or something like that if they're in an area that's got animals in it and they're walking through and not paying attention or they're or they're going up and because the animal might be a novel thing for them they're going up and patting the animal and hanging around and is that is that the, the most likely way we're going to see it, one of those methods yeah uh, for the international experience is that the, the most common route of entry is through food products so people bringing things like uh, sausages uh, home uh, not not finishing the sausage and uh, throwing it out the window and it being picked up by a feral pig or a domestic pig and, and being amplified from there. But, but there is also a risk that it be carried back on clothing or, or boots if you've been walking in an area that uh, infected cattle are present or if you've interacted with the cattle. And, you know, barley cattle are, are very attractive, docile animals and, and, you know, tourists will want to approach them and they're not hidden away. They're quite readily accessible to a lot of the areas that tourists are visiting. In terms of, there's been a lot in the last, I reckon the last two days, there's been a lot of talk on social media and in the, in the general media, and that some of it's not quite accurate. And I think a lot of it is a lot of, there's a lot of expectations that the government should do X, Y, and Z. And I thought it was good to get you on as well to do a bit of fact checking. And there's a lot of people thinking that the government's not doing anything. How do you think the response from the government is? Do you think you or are the processes good? How how well prepared is Australia? I guess is a question. Well, uh, Australia is well known internationally as having the most stringent uh, arrangements at the border and the most visible arrangements at the border. So we. Uh, profile uh, people that are returning to Australia. We, we look at where they've been. We ask them to fill out a, a declaration. Uh, we then uh, undertake our interventions and inspections. So we, we use x-rays in the baggage hall. We, we use detector dogs um, and, and we build up a, a bank of information on uh, people and on classes of people that are, are traveling and, and in that way are able to target our, our activity. We've also got uh, very visible uh, information in the airports uh, on the, uh, as, as the aircraft are descending, there's the video that's played to, to everybody uh, underlining the, the importance of biosecurity. So I think there are a, a large number of efforts, not all of them are, are visible to the uh, casual uh, passenger, uh, but uh, efforts that are you know, far in excess of, of what you experience when you travel to other countries. And I guess that's the thing. It's it's a lot of stuff in the background that we don't see. And I guess it's worked so far because we haven't had major outbreaks. So, and, and Australia's very, very fortunate that, you know, we're an island nation uh, <coughs> and we, we've generally had a, a good understanding of quarantine and biosecurity. We've been, uh, you know, benefited from the last couple of years with COVID that uh, a whole level of, of uh, uh, travel activity has reduced. But what we've seen as a consequence is, a lot more uh, product coming through the mail and uh, yeah. through cargo, um, and uh, that that's been of concern. And so, so but, but really, when when it comes down to it, it's still you've still got to have somebody who goes near an animal or brings food back, but then it still has to be connected to an actual live animal in Australia for it to transfer. So it's still quite a long chain, really, if you look at it from us the virus supply chain, for want of a better word. You, yeah, it's, for, it's, for, it's, for people that are living in urban or suburban areas, that, that, that chain doesn't exist. Uh, yeah. but, but the concern is people that are returning uh, to a, a farm or a station uh, in northern Australia 
they've been to uh, Bali for a short holiday and returned directly back onto the farm or, or the station and interacting with animals again within 24 hours of, of their, their journey. So, so if you're profiling it, you'd basically sort of say majority of people are not going to be a sort of a risk. It's, it's really actually the people who should know better that are the risk. So farmers that are going to be the ones that, or farm workers or people in, agri- in rural areas. So, yeah. Yeah, and, 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 that, and, and that's, that's part of our, our profiling is looking at, you know, what postcodes are people are returning to, what, what are the declared occupations, and, and uh, trying to match that up with uh, those that are most likely to pose that risk. Mark, Mark, there's been a few, and Andrew mentioned about it, some of the, I guess, misinformation or, or peculiar calls on, on social media in particular it's rife with some of that stuff but i did see some calls recently about you know we should just ban travel to bali or we should um put foot baths at the at the ports so that as people come through they've got to go through a, a foot bath technique is that are they practical solutions or is that just you know silliness uh well it would obviously be very disruptive to ban uh travel to one destination that's got uh, foot and mouth disease when we don't do it for all the others that don't have the same disease status uh, foot baths are, are useful in that they raise awareness in, in people's minds of uh, the danger of foot and mouth disease. But in practice, they're, they're not very effective. Uh, most people don't wear boots. Uh, most people returning from Bali are coming back in, in thongs or flip-flops, and uh, you can't walk through a virucidal uh, bath uh, with that because you can't expose it to skin because uh, it's, it's quite a dangerous mm. chemical. Uh, likewise, you can't have uh, you know children splashing about in a, in a foot bath because that, that would be dangerous. So, you, and likewise, you can't you know supervise have have an officer standing there supervising every foot bath at, 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 of every returning flight. Uh, so there are some practical consequences and, and considerations that that need to be addressed in in you know, embarking on, on that. Uh, but the, the the importance as a visual reminder is is one that that should not be. Uh, uh, dismissed. What's the um, so in the in the event that we were to get an incursion of say FMD because we are going to get onto lumpy skin a bit later, which is a, a whole different kind of you know virus really in terms of how it transmits. But um, if we were to get an incursion, what what's the you know what's the next step from that? If we have an incursion, the, the, the initial challenge is detecting that uh, because the diseases can be quite subtle. Uh, we saw that in the UK in 2001, where there were extensive movements of sheep uh, that were infected because nobody recognised that the sheep were infected because in sheep it is quite difficult to pick up uh, FMD. So, and you know, in northern Australia, likewise, we we have very little uh, interaction uh, with animals on a, a daily or, or weekly basis. So, uh, detecting that that first incursion would be the the initial challenge. Having detected the outbreak, we, we then need to embark upon a response. And we have a couple of options open to us. One is to slaughter the infected animals and, and uh, a ring around those animals to try and uh, see if we can stop the outbreak in that way. And that, that works well if, if you're confident that you've detected it earlier and it's uh, quite a, a defined uh, narrow area of infection. Uh, the other option is uh, to vaccinate animals and to manage uh, the outbreak over a longer period of time. And uh, that, that works better if, if you're less confident that you've detected it early or that you're already aware that the, the disease is in multiple locations when, when you de- uh, detect the first incursion. 
But that, that, that vaccination method takes longer to get your markets access back, though, doesn't it? Generally. That's right. Yeah. Uh, is, that, is, that part of, that's, is that part of the reason why we aren't vaccinating yet? Is, I, I believe it's one that there's different strains. Is that correct? So you don't know what you're vaccinating for until you get it, but then also you have issues with market access if you start vaccinating ahead of a potential uh, incursion. If we were to vaccinate now, all our trading partners say, well, you're vaccinating for a disease, uh, but you claim you don't have the disease. We don't believe that. Uh, we're, mm-hmm. we're going to treat you as if you have FMD, so you've lost your market access. So you can't, you can't vaccinate uh, preemptively. And, and, and that, that's uh, an issue, for example, for us sending live cattle uh, to Indonesia at the moment. Um, they're going to in, into an area that's going to be infected, so we want them to be vaccinated as soon as possible. That doesn't mean that we can vaccinate them in Australia, but it does mean that we want them to be vaccinated as soon as uh, they arrive. Uh, in, in terms of uh, a vaccination response, yes, there, there are seven serotypes of, of FMD, and each serotype has, has sub-serotypes, and, and you need to match exactly the, the, the vaccine that you're using against uh, the, the serotype that, that uh, is in your vaccine. And, and that was uh, you know, one of the delays and one of the concerns with Indonesia is that they very quickly provide the samples so that the vaccine can be matched and, and demonstrated to be effective against the outbreak strain. So in, in Australia, we, we've, we hold a bank of vaccines that that bank has held in the UK. Uh, I was able to visit that bank a couple of months ago and confirm that our holdings are, are present there. And the agreement that we've got in place is that within a week of us uh, declaring that we've got FMD and identifying the outbreak strain that we'll have the appropriate vaccine in country. So the process Indonesia are going through now with that vaccination is is kind of what we would do. Can you give us a bit of an idea as to what's the timeline in that process? It's not just, it's not a quick, simple thing, is it? We're talking months to, to roll out something like that, aren't we? Uh, so we, we would, in the Australian uh, circumstance, we would have a vaccine with in-country in a week um, and we already have holdings of the, the vaccine guns and, and other safety equipment that's needed uh, in administering FMD vaccine. Uh, Indonesia, uh, it, it's you know, a far more uh, complex situation uh, that they have the vaccine in-country now, but... Uh, there's a number of challenges in getting the vaccine from the central authority to the provincial authority to the district authority and then working out well who's going to administer the vaccine who's going to pay the per diem who's going to pay the petrol money we don't have yards to catch the cattle who's going to catch the cattle how are we going to get uh, close to the cattle so that we can administer the vaccine and and we saw that with lumpy skin disease also that there's a, a number of uh, logistics uh, challenges in, in actually getting the vaccine into the animals. In Australia, we don't believe that we would have those challenges to the same extent. We've got very good infrastructure. We've got yards. We've got fences. Uh, we were able to muster animals quickly and, and get them in and, and vaccinate them. I was just wondering, so so, so basically the first, the first method is basically a firebreak cull, the same as they did in the UK in 2001, effectively, yeah? So I was, I was talking to somebody yesterday about it, and I was thinking about geographically, Australian farms are very different to British farms. Like in my area, it's small farms. So when you've got that, you know, what, was it 5Ks uh, around a farm? 
Uh, yes, um, and as you say, the, the the situation in Australia is very different to because you've the, got huge farms. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the British countryside. Yes, and and there's not that many people walking around and and uh, walking through the the fields and going for picnics and whatnot. So does that is that a benefit for Australia in that you do have like from one farm to another can be, especially in station country, is is a long long distance. Yes, uh, that, that's uh, certainly a, a benefit uh, that we, we don't have animals uh, touching noses across fence lines uh, for you know, much, much of northern Australia. Uh, also, uh, the environment is, is far more um, or far less conducive uh, to, to uh, vaccine spread by wind, uh, for mm. example. Uh, in, in the UK, they experienced that you know, damp wind carried the vaccine for quite some distance. Uh, we, we don't have those types of conditions in, in northern Australia in particular. And that was especially around piggeries as well, wasn't it? Well, well, pigs are, are very challenging for, for FMD because if they become infected, they are an amplifying host. They just produce so much vaccine. Mm. And so if you've got a piggery that's got hundreds of, of sows, you're just pumping out millions and millions of, virus. of uh, virus. virus particles that are being picked up in the wind and will be carried as plumes uh, from those farms, and, and you can map that uh, quite successfully. Despite, Mark, despite the, the, the size of Australia and that geographic kind of diversity, though, if we were to get an incursion, you, the, the livestock movements stop straight away until we identify where it's got to, but then also um, that loss of market, uh, global market access would be, it wouldn't matter if we got it in northern Queensland, the Tasmanian producers will be equally affected, right, won't they? That's right. Uh, because we're one uh, country, Australia would lose its, its status. Um, and uh, that would be a, a loss of uh, access for a number of years. Obviously, we would try to negotiate with trading partners as soon as possible that uh, free areas, uh, free uh, zones of the country uh, would be able to regain access. But to, to negotiate that, you need to have very good evidence that the disease is not present, that you've got active surveillance in place, um, and do that to the satisfaction of, of each individual trading partner. So that's a very expensive, very long-term uh, process. It's not something that you'll be turning yeah, we're not, we're not talking it. about a matter of months. It's going to be multiples yes. of years potentially, right? Yeah, indeed. Which, which yeah. At, that, at that point, your livestock's worth nothing. So, or and, 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 and that, and, Yeah, and, and that, that's the challenge, uh, particularly with that 70% export uh, market, all of that 70% coming back onto the domestic market. Obviously, we can't consume three times what we're currently consuming. I could try. Uh, and, Andrew and I, <laughs> I did a mistake. Give, give it a good rock go. But, and, but, that, uh, but that's uh, the difference between the UK, though, as well, because we saw, yeah. if you look at those figures of the UK exports, it took them about five years to really get their numbers back up again. And, and, and exports were a, a much smaller margin exactly. of their national production. So uh, can we go back quickly to, to something Matt was saying there about the, you know, the geographic spread. And, and one of the things that we don't really have in the UK is feral animals either, or not, not to the same extent. We don't have the feral pigs. Uh, and I heard two sort of views on it. Everyone, a lot of people I speak to say, oh, you know, once it gets in the feral pig population, it's, it'll never get out. But then I've spoke to a lot of other people who say, well, actually, those pigs will probably just go and lie under a bush and die. What's the what's the general consensus on feral animals? Uh, so we've done some modelling on feral pigs. Uh, the, the the numbers amplify quite massively when when the conditions are good, and and we we, we saw that uh, 
in the early part of this year with the, the flooding and, and warm conditions. Uh, but uh, the, the, the feral pig uh, mobs are fairly discreet. They, they don't communicate with each other. And, and the belief is, uh, and the modelling that we've done, is that uh, the disease wouldn't be able to move across Australia through feral pigs because there's not much communication between the groups and that the disease would burn itself out within uh, the, those groups. But that, that's on the basis of a modelling. That, that, that's not uh, you know, based on real life. That, that's uh, based on the information that we've got available and something that you know, further research is warranted. So we don't really want to test it, but we're quietly confident on that one. Yes, yeah. Um, and, and likewise, uh, you know, the, the, the level of information that we've got on feral pigs is quite poor. Even the, the number of feral pigs is not something that is routinely surveyed. Uh, we've heard numbers from 10 times the, the national um, domestic pig population to uh, parity with the national pig population. And you know, that's a very big uh, difference in figures. Mm. We, um, we mentioned as well, going through the, the stacks, I, I do want to kind of cover off a bit on lumpy skin as well, just because, you know, it's, an, it's another threat there, but it's a very different disease in terms of its transmission. And, and you mentioned as well, Mark, in the Sixth Sense kind of word association that it's a disease that something along the lines of that people in Australia are un, un, largely unaware about and, it's, and it is another risk factor. Um, but it, but it, it's likely to come through quite differently uh, if it gets in. Can you explain to us the most likely method for that and how that disease transmits? This is for lumpy skin? Yep. Uh, so lumpy skin disease is a, a viral disease carried by biting insects, so mosquitoes biting flies. Um, and for that reason, we're, we're quite concerned that uh, those biting flies could be blown into Australia, particularly if the infection were present in uh, uh, countries that are close to Australia. Uh, at the moment, it, it's uh, confined to, to northern Indonesia, but it, it may well spread, as we've seen with uh, foot and mouth disease and African swine fever, it may well spread in, into uh, southern Indonesia. And in that case, we, we know from uh, previous years that, for example, the Kilicoides, the biting midge, is uh, on uh, in cyclonic events blown from uh, that region into Australia. So uh, the concern is that uh, infected biting insects could be blown from uh, uh, one of those infected countries into Australia and, and then seed the infection in Australia. So that... The, the, the route of infection is quite different uh, to foot mouth disease in, in that it doesn't require you know, people or, or animals to move or animal products, but it could be just uh, movement of, of the insect vector. Yeah, it's not a, what they call an unregulated pathway in the sense it's not coming through a, a port where we've got biosecurity measures in place. So it's almost a random thing that just blows in on the wind if, if the conditions are right for it. Yeah, and there's, there's very little that we can do at, at uh, airports or seaports that's going to, to stop that. And uh, we, we saw that uh, last year with fall armyworm, which is a, a very serious uh, horticulture pest, which blew in uh, from, from uh, that, that region. And now this one's one that, that it's, it's in terms of the species that it impacts upon, it's pretty much the cattle species, right? That there's a concern for lumpy skin, not so much the other um, species that are affected by FMD, but it's still going to cause issues in the sense that it's going to, if it gets in, we're going to have the same kind of concerns around market access. Is that right? Yes. Uh, so uh, lumpy skin disease affects uh, cattle and buffalo. Uh, it causes large uh, wounds or, or large holes uh, through the hide. Uh, 
um, and it can be transmitted uh, through the scabs that form on those wounds. Um, and as a consequence, uh, it has a, a large impact on market access, particularly on, on skins and hides and on dairy mm. products, uh, less so on, on meat, but, but a number of byproducts are affected as well. At, at this stage, uh, not many countries have imposed conditions on lumpy skin disease in their certification uh, requirements from Australia, but that reflects the fact that lumpy skin disease was not a disease that was present in our region five years ago. It's a, it was a disease that was confined to Africa and was not thought to be a, a very great risk in our region. Uh, but uh, in the last five years, it, it's become established and, and widespread right across our Southeast Asia. So, so in terms that, of in terms of sorry, sorry, Matt, uh, you you had sort of uh, mentioned, I think it was nine percent risk of FMD in the next five years. What is the sort of similar number for LSD? I think I, I don't have the number in front of me, but I think it was something in the order of twenty eight percent because of that that risk of uh, the the vector uh, uh, carriage. That, and then there's a, a number of additional concerns with, with lumpy skin disease in that there is a, a vaccine, but it's a live vaccine. Uh, so uh, we don't have access to the vaccine in Australia. The countries that produce the vaccine at the moment are countries that we would not normally buy a vaccine from because of their own uh, animal health status, and particularly a live vaccine because live vaccines uh, suffer from the the risk of contamination uh, mm. during the, the manufacture process that they be contaminated with other viruses. And we've seen that in the past. So uh, that, that's a, another uh, sphere of activity that we're undertaking at the moment, getting the virus into Australia, into the high security laboratory in Geelong so that we can study it. And then uh, looking at whether we can uh, purchase vaccine or indeed manufacture a vaccine in a safe way uh, here so that we've got vaccine on hand should we need it. What's the um, the process, Mark, if we do get an incursion of lumpy skin that's detected? Is, is it the same type of a scenario where it's a halt to the movement of livestock or because it's more vector-borne, is that less less relevant because you can't you can't contain it as easily given that it, you know, it's biting insects that are transmitting it? And, and is, is it still the same scenario where it's a slaughtering process to try and eliminate the virus there or how, how do we deal with it? Yeah, so the, our, our response plan uh, has... Uh, a, uh, again, the, the, a slaughter or, or a vaccine uh, option. Uh, but the, the difficulties there are you can't slaughter animals quickly enough before the, the insect vector moves on and infects other herds. Mm. So, you, so you need very wide buffers and, and you need to move animals away from each other so that you, you've got a, a, a very broad area where insects aren't able to, to get to the next naive herd. Um, and then in terms of the vaccine, you know, the, the response plan uh, prefers a, a vaccinate approach, but we don't have access to a vaccine. And uh, that wasn't such an issue when the disease was in Africa, but it, it's uh, certainly a, a much bigger issue now that it's in uh, Indonesia. How quickly it came into Indonesia? Was it last year, from memory? Serves me correctly. And yeah. so what has been the progress in terms of the spread? Are we talking something that can spread reasonably quickly or, or have we got... You know, still some time house leave to, to get some more you know, methods in place to try and deal with it. Should we get it? Uh, it it uh, is not. It hasn't spread as, as quickly as foot mouth disease. Um, uh, it is 
appears to be largely confined to the island on which it initially entered, uh, was in one province initially and it spread uh, to all of the neighbouring provinces there, uh, but it hasn't spread uh, further through the archipelago. So I think we've got uh, some time, but uh, it, we're, we're working as quickly as we can to address th those uh, shortfalls in our, our response. So, look, it, so it sounds like, like we've all been through customs in Australia. It's always a, a scary experience. My, my mother hates it when she comes over because she watches Border Force on the UK TV every week. Um, so we know that biosecurity is still pretty tickety-boo. It's pretty, pretty good, yeah? But borders are still porous. What, what's, if, if it gets into the country, how well equipped do you think we are for you know, tracking tracing? Same as we had with COVID. For, for tracking those animals? Do you think we've got a good system in place or? Uh, so we, we have a, a very good system in place for cattle uh, in that we've got individual identification. Uh, we, we have a, a, a weaker system uh, for, for sheep and goats in that it, it's a mob-based approach and not all mobs uh, you know, retain their integrity. They'll go to say yards, they'll be split up, they'll be go onto a farm and, and uh, join another mob. And, and that that is much more challenging uh, to uh, trace, and you know, particularly for foot and mouth disease, where there's little sign of, of the disease in in sheep, it, it can be quite challenging to identify infected animals and then trace them out. So that that that's a, a, an area that uh, I'd I'd like to see strengthened is uh, improved traceability, and the the national livestock identification system that we've got in place was state of the art. Uh, 20 plus years ago, but it's not state of the art now. The technology's moved on, and I think there there are a number of opportunities to to uh, step up in, in terms of uh, livestock traceability. Because the UK, like Scotland, Scotland went to individual EID tags on sheep, but didn't on cattle. Is that right? That's correct, I think. And that was, and that, I think that was because of the fact that it was harder to detect in sheep, so they saw it as less of a risk factor in in cattle. Uh, so they stayed with mob based on cattle um, still to this day, I think. So. Yeah, so our, our cattle identification system arose out of the brucellosis and tuberculosis eradication campaign that we okay. ran um, many years ago. Um, and indeed, that campaign also put in place, you know, fences and watering points and, and property identification. Uh, so the, these campaigns and these disease eradication programs can lay the way for uh, infrastructure and big steps forward in terms of technology. Mm. And I'm hoping that we, we see this as an opportunity uh, for uh, improving traceability because traceability has benefits not only uh, for biosecurity, but also for uh, product Province. identity and, yep. and you know, proving that your animal was raised without antibiotics or was, or was raised on pasture. So, in terms of the other thing, the other thing that farmers are asking a lot about is compensation. Yeah. So if there is an outbreak, like in the UK, there was a lot of compensation that was paid out uh, to to agriculture. There is a compensation scheme in in effect, isn't there? Yes. Uh, so we, we have uh, pre-agreed arrangements in place uh, for cost sharing and compensation uh, in Australia. So uh, a farmer who uh, notifies that their uh, herd is infected or that they've got a suspicion uh, won't suffer any any penalty or, or loss as a consequence of that. They'll be compensated for uh, the destruction or, of their animals. 
and uh, that that is all pre-agreed uh, in advance. So that that's one of the great strengths of the Australian system, is that we have those pre-agreed arrangements in place. It's not something you have to negotiate in the in the heat of a, a response. Yeah. Does that extend? Does that extend, Mark? So so when there's that area of the you know the, the five kilometre radius or whatever where it's animals within that area that also like if you've got animals. Ones. Yeah, that are not yeah, not yeah. infected. Any any animal that is uh, destroyed uh, in as part of the response or, or to support the response yeah. Uh, yeah. is is fully compensated, right? And and uh, that that's well practiced. Uh, we we have avian influenza outbreaks on occasion uh, here in Australia. Mm. We had uh, some a couple of years ago. Uh, so those, those uh, flocks were depopulated and then they were re, uh, re-established and uh, there was no loss uh, to those farmers. Because because the, the, the word is that it's about $80 billion is Abair's expectations for the for the loss, which is significant. Mm. It's about the same as JobKeeper. And the UK was, I think, it cost £2.7 <laughs> 2. billion for agriculture and roughly the same for tourism. Because that's the one that yeah. nobody's talking about is tourism, is that yeah. it's, yeah. and, it's such a huge and Obviously, in the UK, to, you know, the, the ability to do those hikes, those trails, uh, those rambles, uh, was a big part of, of uh, the tourist attraction to the UK. Yeah, it's going to be tough. Well, let's hope it doesn't get here. I mean, that's first and foremost. Uh, in terms of actually, just another question, this might sound like a really stupid, naive question, and it probably is. Um, so when, when I was there in the UK, we had the, the, the funeral pyres all over, the, all over our area. Um, but our area is, you know, 1,200 mils of rain a year. It's pretty, pretty moist and pretty, pretty green. Australia is, a lot of Australia is not like that. So how do you dispose of them? This is quite a technical question, but like you couldn't have a funeral pyre in December or January. Uh, so we, we, we have uh, uh, regularly exercises where we look at different me- methods of disposal. Mm. Um, so incineration is, is one method and it will be used on in certain circumstances. Um, uh, so, for example, the flooding that we had in Queensland a, a couple of years ago, mm. we, we weren't able to bury animals, uh, uh, so we, we, we did burn them on, on occasion. But uh, uh, it depends very much on, on the, the topography and, and the, the soil. Uh, deep burial is, is a, another uh, option, and, and we've identified areas that, that could be used for deep burial. Composting is another where you break up the carcass and, and mix it with uh, wood chips, for example, and, and compost it at high temperature uh, over a long period of time. Uh, and then there's things like uh, in, in uh, mobile incinerators and uh, uh, conversion to meat and bone mill and, and those, those types of approaches. So there's a whole range of approaches that can be used, um, but uh, ideally not having those, those long uh, pyres mm. that are burning for, for weeks on end. Yeah, it's pretty horrific. Puts you off barbecue. So, yeah. So that's pretty much it, I reckon. Matt, have you got anything? Oh, there was. Well, when we were just talking before, I think the other one that we haven't touched on yet was just the, the current situation with that Varroa mite incursion oh, yeah. into New South Wales. That's another thing that I presume you're, you've been a busy man already with a lot of this stuff, but I presume that's on your agenda of things to keep on top of as well, Mark. Uh, yes, so, so Varroa uh, is a, a mite that infects honeybees and honeybees under the World Organisation for Animal Health are considered a productive animal. Uh, so it does partly fall under my responsibility and partly under that of the Chief Plant Protection Officer. 
Uh, so we, we've had uh, an incursion of uh, Varroa destructor, a mite of uh, honeybees uh, in Newcastle. Um, and it's a, a mite that we've been trying to keep out for many, many years. And Australia is the only continent that's been free of uh, this pest of, of uh, honeybees um, because it, it can transmit a, a number of other diseases and cause uh, production losses and, and debilitation in hives. So we're, we're working to eradicate uh, the infected hives and uh, a number of hives have been detected so far. The, the good thing being that all of those hives that have been detected are hives that have been physically moved by, by uh, beekeepers. So there's no been no spread between hives by bees, okay. but uh, it's all been hives that have been physically moved by beehives uh, keepers as part of the normal apiary management and pollination activities. We did because, uh, and you've got those sentinel hives, have you not? Um, that are near the, the kind of ports and stuff, so they get checked regularly to make sure that they're not infected. But, um, because did we not get an incursion at one of those, uh, or we came in through a port some years ago as well, but it was it was managed uh, effectively and kept out? Yes, uh, so we, we um, maintain sentinel hives around ports because of this uh, concern about uh, uh, Varroa destructor. Uh, what incurred uh, a couple of years ago was an incursion of uh, Varroa jacobsoni, uh, which is the, the mite that affects Asian honeybees, not, not the European honeybee. And we, we often get swarms of Asian honeybees coming in attached to uh, shipping containers and vehicles and the like. And on occasion, they'll be infected with uh, their own uh, varroa mite. So we, we had to declare that we had that and we tried to eradicate that. And uh, we've been pretty effective in, in getting on top of those Asian honeybee incursions and removing those that have been affected with the mite also. Uh, but this, this is a, a fresh incursion and it's affecting the European honeybee and uh, the, the varroa destructor mite. You're fairly comfortable we're, we're on top of that. Do you think it's, we're going to have success in kind of keeping that under wraps or is there concerns still that there's more to be done? Uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll, we'll get on top of it. Uh, it. The industry have been saying for many years that it's only a matter of time that it turned up, uh, so they've been fully prepared for this, um, and they're working through the challenges of, of responding to that, and, you know, the challenges being, you know, there's lots of feral uh, honeybees, there's lots of uh, people that have got one hive in the backyard. Uh, how do you incorporate them in, a, in a, uh, uh, an eradication response? EIDs for bees, you reckon? Yeah. <laughs> well, well, hives have uh, are usually branded uh, if if they're commercial hives, but but the issue is the, the non-commercial sector. So yeah, so interesting time for you. Plenty of uh, plenty of stuff to add to your CV of experiencing uh, outbreaks and 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 whatnot. <laughs> but in terms of like as a final message back to a lot of people listening to this are farmers and agribusiness professionals. What is your, your, your main take home for people to be aware of with these various outbreaks? That, that, that we shouldn't be complacent. Uh, we, you know, we believe that Australia's clean and green and, and that is largely true, but it's, it's only true through effort. And uh, we, we need to be vigilant and, and active in, in looking out for anything unusual and reporting that and taking all of the measures that we can on farm to keep uh, disease out. Mm. And, and and so just just one actual quick question in terms how much like a, a lot of people put the onus on the government and the vets and whoever else but farmers will have to take a certain amount of responsibility for their own bar security on farm as well and absolutely 
-hmm. And do you think there needs to be a process of upping the biosecurity protocols on farm? Uh, you know, checking guests. Like we we have got a pig farm, and we before anyone's allowed on farm, we have to tell us whether they've been in Africa, Asia in the last X number of days, which is commonplace in pigs. Uh, but I'm not sure I've ever been asked that going on to a sheep farm or a cattle property. Uh, no, but but uh, the the on farm biosecurity notices are, are far more prominent now. Uh, I've I've been on leave for the past month, uh, travelling around um, rural areas in Australia, and, and you're seeing a lot more signs up on gates about you know, this is a farm biosecurity is important. If you're visiting, call this number. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that awareness is is building up. Uh, and. Uh, the, you know, the cost-sharing arrangements that we've got in response are, are not just government uh, contribution, but their industry contribution as well. The farmers are contributing to, to that response. Yeah. No, that's good. Well, we've, we've been, you've been very generous with your time, Mark, um, and we know, you, you know, keeping track of what you've been up to, we look at it closely because it's a concern for us, but we can see you've been incredibly busy, but um, we appreciate you coming on and having a chat about these risks we've got. Um, and, 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 yeah, thank you for the time and, um I think, Andrew, we're nearly done in terms of time, so I'll, I'll wrap it up and, and say see you when you've got nothing on. Yeah, right. enjoyed that. Although it's scary, it was good to have a chat. Thank you. Cheers. Speak again. Bye then.